वसुदेवसुतम देव कंसचाणुरमर्दनम देवकी परमानंदम कृष्णम वंदे जगद्गुरु लेट्स चांट 16 onwards we have done 16 17 18 today's 19 let's just just follow me in the chanting chant after me nasato vidyate bhavo nasato vidyate bhavo na bhavo vidyate satah na bhavo vidyate satah ubhayorapi drishtvantah उभयोरपि दृष्टवनोस्तदर्शि स्वनोतर्शि अविनाशी तो तद्धि अविनाशी तो तद्धि येन सर्वदय से विनाशमय न कचिकर्तमर्हति न कचिकर्तमर्हति अतवेहाोक्ता शरीरण निोक्ता शरीरण अनाशिनो प्रमेय अनाशिनो प्रमेय तस्मास्व भारत तस्मास्व भारत इन रिस्पॉन्स टू अ प्रैक्टिकल क्वेश्चन बाय अर्जुन अर्जुन सिंपली एस्ट व्हाट ही शुड डू व्हाट्स राइट एंड व्हाट्स रॉन्ग बट कृष्ण गोज वेरी डीप he starts with the very nature of the self the root of all wisdom before deciding what is right and wrong what you should do and should not do first you should know what you are and so here he teaches the most profound doctrine of the self of what we really are maybe this is the central teaching the first teaching of uh, advaita vedanta of course the bhagavad gita has many more things to say but this is this is the key so krishna starts with that he tells us what what we think ourselves to be that we are not he makes a distinction between the body and the embodied self sharira shariri sharira means body and by body we do not just mean the physical body when we look at ourselves we find two aspects one is the physical body this one what everybody can see what the doctor checks up and what what you have inside what you inside only me i mean how do you say it because inside the physical body is only more physical body inside closer to your psychic being your your inner being your thoughts your ideas your memories the person that you think you are even that is a body even that is not what you are so the physical body outside by outside i mean relative to the inner self the physical body outside and the inner 
psychological body, the, the gross body, sthula sharira, and the subtle body, sukshma sharira, both are bodies, we are not them. That's what Krishna says. And uh, the first, so we are the Atman, the self. Atman literally means the self, you. And this body and mind, what we consider to be ourselves, are anatman, not self. What is the characteristic of the self as distinguished from the not self? How is it different? What are we talking about here? Well, first of all, Krishna says it does not die. And he starts up, you'll see that very 12th verse. In fact, from verses 11 to 25 is the central teaching of the, the doctrine of the self, Atman. From 11 to 25, second chapter. 12th verse he says, um, there was never a time when you were not or I was not, nor these kings were not. And there will never be a time when we will not be. He does not say that we are here right now because that's obvious, we are here right now. But did we exist before our birth? Are we going to exist after the death of this body? He says, yes. What's going to exist? Not the body. The body is the not-self. The not-self will die. The mind is the not-self. It will change. But there is an unchanging reality, which is you, the real you, that does not die with the death of the body, that does not change or forget with changing and forgetting mind. So that one we are. First of all, it is Nitya, eternal. What is Nitya, eternal? The self, you are eternal. In the 13th verse, it showed how the body goes through childhood, youth, middle age, old age. And these transitions, you say that you are the one who was the kid, you are the one who was the teenager, you are the one who was the middle-aged person, you are the one who, are, who is, you call yourself a senior person now. But it's the body which has made these transitions. As you claim, without any doubt whatsoever, that you persisted through these changes of the body, so also the claim here is, you will persist through the final change of the body, which is death. So that was the 13th verse. The 16th verse is very important. It tells us something, one more thing about the self, about you, about the Atman. It says the Atman is real and the not-self, Anatman, is false and appearance. What did the, what's the first thing it said? The Atman is eternal and the not-self is non-eternal, changing, dying. The second thing it says, not only is the not-self, world, body and mind, non-eternal, but also it's an appearance. It's not real in itself. What is real in itself? You the self. I will not go into explanation. I hope you remember. We did a full class on this 16th verse. Very important. Not only is the body-mind non-eternal, but the body-mind is also is an appearance. In what? In the self. What is the self? Pure being. Not only pure awareness, but pure being. Isness. Do you remember? The isness never goes out of existence and that which appears never truly exists. We discussed the concepts of borrowed existence and intrinsic existence, all those things we discussed. Do you remember the example of the potato which was hot and the water and the fire underneath? So that is given in that 16th verse, very important verse. It tells you, Atma Satyam Jagat Mithya. It takes a lifetime to digest this. It's a stunning revelation. 
and a message of hope. If there is anything real in the world, if there is anything real in this life, it is you. But not in a solipsistic sense. By solipsistic sense I mean I alone am real and you are all false. No. The real I and the real you are one and the same thing. Your reality is the reality of the entire universe. That means there is the core of reality which you are. And that lends reality to what we call the universe. Body, mind and life. Then he goes on. Um, 18th verse, 17th verse. Another beautiful one. He makes another point about the self. He says... The self is all-pervading. Look at how he is hitting our fondest conceptions of ourselves. First conception is, I'm going to die. He says, no, you are immortal. Second conception is, here is a real stark reality. No, you are the reality. That is a dependent reality. It depends on you for the reality. Third, we think, I'm here. And everything else is outside. I'm separate from everything. He says, no. You pervade the entirety of, of reality. How? How is it that I pervade everything? It's only when you are localized in the body that I think I am this one, then you feel that I am here and not there. But suppose you identify yourself with isness, existence. Where are you not? If you are not there, that thing will become no. is not. Not. It will disappear. If isness is not there, it will become is not. You pervade everything as pure being. Or more precisely, everything has its dwelling in you. Because you are pure being. You pervade all experiences of life as pure consciousness. Because without that consciousness, no experience is possible. So as pure being, as pure awareness, you pervade everything. There's nothing that can be there without you. I'm, I know I'm rushing through, but I'm giving you the highlights of what has happened. So you are all pervasive. Then the 18th verse, many things was, many were said. One word was aprameya, very important. Another interesting point he makes. Up. Everything that we know in this world is an object of knowledge. By definition, if you know it, it's an object of knowledge. What you see is an object of seeing. What you hear is an object of hearing. Smell, taste, touch. Or belief. An object of believing, we read in books, uh, religious books, and we're taught to believe in heaven, hell, God. Or object of scientific inquiry, black holes to quarks to protons to, um, to every, all the objects of scientific discovery. They are all objects. Whatever you know in the world is an object. What we are talking about here is unique in that it's not an object. Aprameya means not an object of knowledge. What is that? The pure subject. Oh, what is that? Not that. It is you. So you are not an object. Don't look for yourself in the world of objects. You are very clearly present all the time to yourself as the ever-shining subject. It may sound poetic, ever-shining subject, whatever is that. You should ask hard-headed questions. Is the one who is asking this question right now? Krishna wants you to turn your attention into yourself. You will discover that ever-shining subject. Aprameya, not an object of knowledge. Therefore, you don't ask, why can't I see it? Why can't I hear it? Why can't I smell it, taste it, touch it? Why can't I discover it with the, um, what? the CERN particle accelerator? Why can't I discover it with electron microscopes? No, because all of them deal with objects. 
If, if it is not an object of knowledge, then how will I know it's true? The question is, what is the proof that such an Atma is there? Can you tell me? Assignment. What is the proof that what we are talking about, such a pure awareness or consciousness is there? What is the proof? Yes. Where you're going much, much, much further than that. But uh, in a simple sense, the, uh, the answer, uh, yes, you are right, of course. Yes. Life is there. Life. Life is an object. It can be created. But what, what is the proof that you are pure consciousness? Such a, you're saying that there is an eternal, unchanging, all-pervading, all these things we just said. Pure consciousness, yes, at the back. It is self-evident. You might say, how so? It's not evident to me, buddy. It will be made evident, and when it is made evident, your reaction would be, oh, it was there all along. You know, what is the straight answer to the question, what is the proof? In Sanskrit, the word for proof is pramana. The answer in Advaita Vedanta is, all operation of instruments of knowledge, the objects of knowledge, the instruments of knowledge, and the knowledge generated, all of them depend on this consciousness for, the, for, for their operation. Sarva pramana prameya vyavahara. Every act of knowledge. Knowledge is an act. You see, it's, it's, it requires. Every instrument of knowledge, object of knowledge, and the knowledge that you gain with the instrument and the object. All of them, they are manifested, enabled by this consciousness. And again, if you understand what this means you will see it as a matter of fact, of course. Of course, right now. I am aware, therefore, I see. I have the ex- by I see means I have the experience of seeing. If you go to an airport, the door will slide open when you come near it. There's a sensor there. In a certain sense, it sees you. But there is no conscious experience of seeing in there. You say, how do you know, Swami? Well, even the most ambitious designer of those uh, gadgets will not say that my, my sensors are conscious beings. <laughs> They'll never say that. They are not. There is no conscious experience of seeing. seeing. The entire mechanism of seeing is there. There's a mechanical eye. You know, like, a, like an organ. And there's an object to be seen. You are approaching the door. And knowledge is generated, not as a conscious uh, event, but practically, behaviorally, it behaves as if it is seeing you. But there is no inner experience of seeing there. The inner experience of what we call our lives, that is possible because of this consciousness. This is a so-called hard problem of consciousness. How are we getting this experience? So, aprameya, very important word, not an object of knowledge. If something is not an object of knowledge, what right do you have to speak about it? We have the right to speak about it because it is evident in every knowledge. All right. Now, let me go ahead. So we have had, we have been told by Krishna, you are not the body-mind, you are not born with the body, you do not die with the body, you are eternal, the body-mind, the changing and perishable. You are um, all-pervading. You are real. And the body-mind is limited and unreal. Unreal means appearance, dependent reality. And you are not an object of knowledge. Body, mind, world, object of knowledge. 
some instrument you can know them that which knows that's what you are so so far now let's go ahead some very well known verses usually in india sometimes when people die these verses are verses are chant, chanted it's it's to do with that you are eternal you do not die so you know why these are chanted when people die so you normally you'll sit near the dead body and people are coming to view the body which is lying in state and there'll be somebody chanting the the gita we do do that in the monastery in, in india too if a senior swami monk passes away when we were young novices so it, the word would come to our our training center that such and such swami elderly swami has passed away the body is kept there so till the cremation of the body there will be continuous chanting of the gita by by turn so we divide ourselves into groups and we used to go there so once it so happened they got the advance notice that some swami has passed away and is there in that room the body so you can start go and start the gita chanting and so the novices go there in a group three or four novices with their gita and they go and they see there is a body there and it's covered with a cloth, white cloth um and the room is very quiet so they naturally they sit down and they open the gita vasudeva sutam devam and suddenly with a flurry the cloth is thrown aside and the swami <laughs> irate annoyed old swami sits up and says not me you fools the next room <laughs> um i heard this story about swami t also here um two persons um, he had to- given instructions that when i pass away uh, you should chant the name of sri ramakrishna um jai sri ramakrishna that like you should chant like that once he fainted and the gentleman who took him to the hospital <laughs> you know they he told me the story that i was summoned that the swami swami is uh, in critical condition so he rushed in a car here and there was almost nobody there so two of them there was a, a lady and this gentleman they struggled because he was heavy they struggled to bring him downstairs put him in the car he was lying in the back seat and they started driving and then remembered the instructions so I, while driving they started chanting jai shri ramakrishna and the swami got up in the back seat and said not this time you fools <laughs> and then he collapsed again <laughs> so the, these are the verses which are chanted when uh, people uh, and after a death in the family or something so here is a very famous verse 19th verse yayinam vettihantaram vettihantaram yashchainam manyate hatam ஆத்மன்ஸ்ட்ஸ்ட்ஸ்ட்ஸ்ட்ஸ்ட்ஸ்ட்ஸ்ட்ஸ்ட்ஸ்ட்ஸ்ட்ஸ்ட்ஸ
Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, he was famous, he was called the American Plato, the American Socrates. So he has a famous poem, Brahma. Let me recite it to you and see whether you can see the similarity. That's why I've got this. <laughs> All right. Here, it's a very well-known poem. Emerson. If the red slayer thinks he slays, or if the slain think he is slain, they know not well the subtle ways. I keep and pass and turn again. I mean, he's taking the, that I am the self. Far or forgot to me is near. Shadow and sunlight are the same. The vanished gods to me appear. And one to me are shame and fame. Beautiful. They reckon ill who leave me out. When me they fly, I am the wings. I am the doubter and the doubt. <laughs> and I the hymn the Brahmin sings. The strong gods pine for my abode and pine in vain the sacred seven. But thou, meek lover of the good, find me and turn thy back on heaven. Incredible. Really? So the first one is, of course, a direct um, rendering of the 19th verse of the Bhagavad Gita. If the red slayer, red means, you know, warlike and fierce, thinks that he is slaying, and the one who is killed thinks that I am, I am undone, I am finished, they know not well the, seek, the subtle ways. That I, the self, I am here, and I, I, I pass, and I come again. That means we go through births and deaths, and then he goes on to say that the dualities, what is far forgotten by the world, to me is always present here. Because I am the existence of all things. Shadow and sunlight are the same. To me, to the pure consciousness. The vanished gods, the gods who are not you know, um, seen in the matter of belief, the devatas, to me they appear. And one to me are shame and fame. They reckon ill who leave me out. So in, when you say, I am body and mind, you have left out the real nature of yourself. You have left it out. You don't notice it. I am, and I enable everything. I will come to that later on. I enable everything. All activities. I do not do them. But because of me, they are happening. I am not the doer. And uh, I am not the act itself. But because of me, all is possible. Even the religion, he says, I, the hymn, the Brahmin sings. Religion is also I. Doubter and doubt I am. The doubting of the skeptic, and the believing person and the atheist. Both I am. It's because how? I, the consciousness alone. Without me, what doubt can there be? Without me, what belief can there be? Strong gods pine for my abode. The Vedic gods, Indra and Varuna and Agni. How do I know this is what is meant? So in the internet, Google is very helpful. There are, there are study notes for this poem, so I read, read that. <laughs> Indra and Varuna and Agni, um, they cannot attain this highest reality. Pure consciousness is beyond them also. But it is you. 
and pine in vain the sacred seven, the seven rishis. They, they keep the greatest of spiritual people. They keep trying for this. But thou, meek lover of the good, so you, the, the, the humble lover of God, Bhakta, you find me. And then what is the result? Turn thy back on heaven. But this is a, a very interesting way to put it. Because moksha is going beyond heaven and hell. That this continuous cycle of birth and death going to higher lokas, heaven. Being born here, here, earth. Or going to lower worlds and suffering, hell. And coming back again. This entire cycle, that's the, how the Hindus, Buddhists, Jains see it. So he says, if you attain me, you turn your back on heaven. Imagine in the late 19th century to say this on the east coast here. It would have been very confusing for people. Uh, in fact, Emerson gave a talk in, um, in the Harvard Divinity School, a famous talk, where he told the bewildered <laughs> graduating class that you should regard everybody yourself as pure consciousness, as awareness. And he criticized this overemphasis, which is given says, in your studies, on the person of Jesus and the personality of Jesus. You take the impersonal reality, the consciousness to be yourself. And everyone ultimately is good and everyone ultimately is saved. So this, this kind of teaching he gave, very Vedantic teaching, very Upanishadic teaching. The result was he was banned from Harvard. <laughs> For 28 years when he was welcomed back and uh, then given a great honor. Um, of course, he was the greatest of the American transcendentalists. So in him you see the meeting of the Upanishads and American thought in the late 19th century, before Vivekananda came to this country. Thoreau, Walden Pond, he writes, he used to stay in the, like a hermit, he writes in his uh, Walden, he writes that every day in the morning I read the Bhagavad Gita. He says, I bathe my intellect in the stupendous philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita, compared to which our modern literature and art seem paltry and trivial. He says, he said, the light of a purer dawn, he said. A beautiful language he uses. I, I, I come into contact with this when I read, open the pages of the Bhagavad Gita. Why, I'm, I, why I bring in Thoreau, he was also part of the Transcendentalists. His collection, he had 45 books on Upanishads and Gita by a, a British friend of his who sent those books to him. So that was the finest collection of Indian philosophy in those days on the East Coast. When he died, the entire collection went to Emerson. So, Emerson loved reading the Gita and the Upanishads and all. So this is the poem, Brahma. <laughs> now if we go into the philosophy of it, what is being said here? What is said here, the Atman, your real nature, is not a doer, karta, agent of action. If you think that you are the slayer, you are not. That means you are not the doer of any action. Pure consciousness does not do anything. It's not the doer of an action. It's not karta, agent of action. When you do an action, you get the results. Experiencing the results is often translated as enjoying the results. It may not be enjoyable. It can be miserable also. Experiencing the results of one's actions. In Sanskrit, it is called bhokta, the experiencer, or often translated as the enjoyer. But experience her. So we do karma, karta. And we experience the results of our karma, bhokta. That's the general idea. 
And he says the Atman is neither. It's not a doer, not an ex- a- experiencer uh, of, of, uh, of the results of karma. Yes. What is the experiencer? Clearly there is an experiencer. Clearly there is a doer. Right now, Swami, aren't you speaking? So aren't you doing something? It is that same pure consciousness. You, the Atman, identified with, confused with, uh, forgetting your real nature, identifying with the mind and body, lighting up the mind and body with with you, the awareness, giving it existence, and then you become the doer through the mind and body. And when the experiences start coming, you become the experiencer. Who is the experiencer? The Atman. Didn't you just say the Atman is not the experiencer? The Atman in itself is not the experiencer. But the Atman identified with thinking that its body-mind becomes experiencer. Then falls into the trap of karma. Yes, Bill. Yantri. I am the machine, you are the driver of the machine. So instead of thinking of the Atman as I, this is Vedanta. But if it's too much to swallow in this way, you can think of the Atman as God. That's that's uh, That's another way of approaching it. And that's an easier way of approaching it. Vedanta would have you think of this Atman which is being revealed. Atman literally means the self, you. We are talking about you. If you really think about it, it's stupendous. It might be too much to digest. But this much you can do is, uh, there is such a thing which is immortal, which is pure being and awareness, which transcends all doing and experiencing. And this is the God of religion. That's the beginning. Then what would you be, the lower self be, if such a God exists within you, then that is the operator, that enables everything to happen. I just become a vessel then. So Sri Ramakrishna says that. There, in that way also you can be free of the travails of karma. There's another person there at the back. You wanted to ask something? Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm so concerned about this. Why was this ignorance set in motion? Mm, yes. I, I was, you know, they, they said that the suffering is an article called ignorance. Is, mm. there is no Beginningless. Yeah. Mm. There's no starting point. Huh. Yes. And Advaita also says that it's beginning less but with an end. So, uh, why were we set in motion in these bodies and this, uh, mm-hmm. this, this race as a child, big bone and going through this process and ultimately going back to death? And I don't know why are we doing this? Yes, that's right. Who, who is doing this to us? Yeah, so the answer might be. God is doing this, or this is natural, we are born with it. Vedanta says, you are born with this ignorance. The thing to do is, you know what they say, this question is natural. When you come to a certain point of hearing these things again and again, this question is bound to come. And come not just once, it's bound to come again and again. <laughs> you know what the Swami say in, in, in Uttarakhand, in the Himalayas? They say, don't seek to establish ignorance, seek to cut down ignorance. Agyan ko pratishtha mat karo, agyan ko kato. What you're asking is, how did this happen? Don't, instead of asking, how did this happen? Clearly, I am under the influence of such a thing. How do I get out of it? How did this happen? No answer. As uh, one of the early Swamis said, 
on this side of ignorance, we have the question and no answer. On the other side of ignorance, when we are enlightened, they have the answer but no question. <laughs> yes. So there are, there are a lot of discussion. I think last time also we discussed this, that uh, there is no beginning to this. And what does it mean, no beginning? It's not a cause thing, which something has made. But after all, ignorance is not made by anything. It's there to be cut down. Knowledge removes ignorance. You wanted to add something to this? Yes. So that's a very Wittgensteinian approach. It's like uh, existence precedes essence. Uh -huh. So the essence comes afterwards. Right. So the Wittgensteinian approach is you don't solve philosophical problems, you dissolve them. So afterwards, it's true that notice in the lives of enlightened people, um, in any Vedanta, of course, but any tradition, one thing you'll notice is they don't have a... Re Question remaining over. Yes, I'm enlightened now. I'm the Buddha now. It's all, all, all good. Except one thing. Why did ignorance start at all? The, it doesn't. It bothers us. It doesn't seem to bother them. Which means somehow the question is not valid. Vivekananda would say the question is not correct. And we have discussed this. Why the question is not correct? I mentioned it on. The, I will not go into it today. It's a convoluted discussion. And just to give you a, those who have not heard this. See, you are asking, why ignorance? Now, when you ask, why ignorance? You are asking, what are you asking for? You are asking for a cause of ignorance. Whenever you ask, why? What answer will satisfy you? A cause. Why is the grass wet? Because it rained or it snowed. So, because. You need a cause. Why is there ignorance? You need a cause for ignorance. But the question is valid for everything else except for ignorance. Why? Again, why? Because of this. Ignorance, the technical term is maya. Space, time, causation. Desha, kala, nimitta. Now, if you ask, why maya? This is what you're asking, basically. Why maya at all? What you're asking is, why maya is equal to, why space, time, causation? Why causation? Causation is cause and effect. Once cause and effect is set into motion, you can ask, what is the cause of this effect? What is the effect of this cause? But why, what is the cause of causation itself? It's logically wrong. You can't, like you, you can't ask, what's outside space? Because outside and inside are space words. You can't ask, what's before time? Because bef time before and after are time words. Once time has started, you can ask before and after. Once space is there, you can ask inside and outside. But outside space doesn't make sense. Before time does not make sense. Why a cause? Cause of cause does not make sense. That's why why ignorance has no answer. Yes. Right. So good karma is, um, we, we define it this way. The term for good karma in Vedanta is dharma. The term for bad karma is adharma. So dharma is variously defined. If you look at the dictionary definition of dharma, you will find one page of dharma. It is defined as morality, it is defined as religion. If you are asking what is morality, then that's a big question. You are asking a question about ethics. What is good and what is bad? 
there are many ways of defining it one way swami vivekananda says he has very powerful insights he says you can try this way all that is selfish is evil all that is unselfish is good interesting you can you can problematize it also you can you can in, in, but it's a very powerful insight if you ask me whatever takes you to enlightenment is good whatever takes you away from enlightenment is bad sort of operational definition if you ask a strict believer in say um, a particular religion whatever my religion commands my text sacred text command that is good whatever they prohibit that is bad now when i act in accordance with commandments with the do's i am doing good when i violate the do's and do something that is prohibited then i am doing bad so this is dharma and adharma this generates what is called papa and punya merit and demerit and the result of punya merit is sukha happiness the result of papa demerit is unhappiness so this is basically the way the moral causality this is called law of karma yes hand there yes let me see if i can rephrase that are you asking what uh, uh, what is relative relative to what are you saying ethics are relative or relative to what Are you saying are you saying relative in the sense that what is good for one person might be bad for another person in that sense? There's that but also the the because it's still part of core part of maya yes part of, it's still part of maya. yes so i think i'm trying to understand it from the sense of to reach that satchidananda Are you asking what would be the purpose of all of this how is this connected to the satchidananda the answer is it's not really connected <laughs> The answer is from Advaita Vedanta perspective this cause law of causation karma good and bad good deeds bad deeds all of it is within the movie and the satchidananda is the screen on which the movie is playing it is not doing good deeds or bad deeds nor is it really affected by um, the uh, not does it enjoy the results of the good deeds nor does it uh, suffer the consequences of the bad deeds but but here's the the nub that you will enjoy and suffer the consequences of the deeds that you have done this is enabled by satchidananda because it gives existence to everything it gives awareness to everything so so from the point of advaita from the point of vedanta what is what do you have to do with all this what's what's my perspective vivekananda put it very powerfully he said good good bad bad and none escape the law law of karma good means dharma good good dharma leads to punya leads to sukha dharma good action leads to merit leads to happiness bad 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 action adharma leads to papa demerit leads to unhappiness dukkha and none escape the law he says nobody escapes the law it's under causation 
Nobody means none of the jivas, the, the embodied beings under in ignorance. He says, whosoever wears a form must wear the chain too. Whosoever wears a form means we are all wearing forms here, all bodies. He says, no, wears a form means thinks that I am this one. This is who I am. If you think this is who I am, then the karma which produced this body, that will have its effect on you. You will also suffer. You will also enjoy according to the merits and demerits behind this body. And whatever you do with this body, those actions also will come upon you. So far is law of karma. All this is within the movie. Yeah, I see the hand. Wait, just a minute. Let me complete. All this is within the movie. Then, what is, what is Vedanta saying? What's all, what is the point here? Vivekananda says, But far beyond name and form is Atman ever free. No, thou art that, Sanyasi bold. Say, Om Tatsat Om. All this is the movie. All this is the appearance. You are the reality of the appearance. You have to know that. As long as you do not know yourself as you are, as long as you identify yourself as the embodied being, as this body being born and aging and dying, as this mind which is uh, doing good things and bad things. When you think, I am this one, then the results, the action done by this is, you are a, you are a doer and the results will come upon you, you will be the experiencer. Karta bhokta. This is exactly what the verse is saying. You are neither the real you, pure being, pure consciousness. Like Emerson said, he says that they know not the subtle ways. Who thinks the slayer slay, thinks that I, I am slaying, the slain thinks I am slain. They know not. The pure consciousness, he says, far beyond name and fame, far beyond name and form is Atman ever free. You, beyond name and form, if you would know yourself truly as you are, you are set free immediately. Simple. Know the, the screen of the movie. The screen of the movie is not part of the plot of the movie. The screen on which the movie is playing is not a part of the plot of the movie. It is not the villain who commits a murder. Not the police who comes and arrests the villain. All of that is not the screen. Screen has nothing to do with it. And yet, it is only because of the screen the whole thing is happening. You as pure being and awareness, you are unaffected. By anything that happens in life, you transcend it. And yet you are not, these are not two different things. Whatever is happening in the panorama of life is happening because of you. You are, because of your presence, you lend existence to it, you lend awareness to it. Bill, do you remember your question? Yes. 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 Right. You know what? There's a reason I'm smiling. Just a little while ago, um, you know, you are, many of you know that tomorrow we have the interfaith conference. Um, the moderator of the panel is Swami Atma Rupananda, uh, who is the Swami from Houston. He just came and we got him from uh, LaGuardia. And in the car while coming back, Swami Atma Rupananda was telling me, you know, Bill had a question. The question was, how does the law of karma work? Um, because scientifically there must be some connection for causation to work. So action done now in some life, 
how can it produce a result in entirely different life somewhere where is the connecting link when i thump this table it's because my hand is in connection with the table that the sound is produced if there is no connection if there is no physical causality how is karma producing result so the swami told me this is the question that bill had in the 1970s <laughs> exactly the same question it's amazing that he should ask this right now here right here <laughs> so i don't think any answer that i'm going to give is going to resolve the question in so quickly yes so that's why you can raise a question uh, about its scientific veracity but consider it this way karma has three effects according to the law of karma three effects are produced two of which stand the test of science what are the two results one is an immediate result you give food to a homeless man and the man eats and he's is fed you can see that that's a physical result any work has a physical result which can be easily observed that's one effect the immediate effect the second effect is psychological keep sharing your food with somebody um and somebody say and you starve to death no you get the psychology of sharing your character changes that also can be observed that that it's not not it's fairly uncontroversial you keep doing an action it becomes habitual keep doing good good becomes habitual it's not a struggle anymore why is it starve to death i remembered once we were driving along upstate new york there was um, a little uh, restaurant as we were driving past i saw that in the, in the remote there is nothing near it and it said on the top says eat here or we'll both starve <laughs> i think the poor restaurant owner you know <laughs> you remember that yes eat here or we'll both starve but it creates a, a habit of um, sharing so these two results the physical effect and the psychic effect both are you understand they are they, they are uh, non controversial the third one is what is called the cosmic effect that is where a question of belief comes in what is the co- cosmic effect that some action that i do now quite apart from the physical effect and the psychic effect will give me some kind of a result in some future time in this life or the next that's what we primarily mean by my karma now there is the question bill is asking for that karma what is the connecting link and it's not a question that is it's, uh, they have not thought about they have thought about it um the purva mimamsakas uh, the philosophers who are experts in the the ritualistic portion of the vedas so the ritualistic portion of the vedas is all about karma do good get the results and then uh, experience the results go to heaven or whatever so they had elaborate fire rituals you perform them and the result will be an accumulation of merit and with that accumulation of merit you go to heaven immediately the question is asked where is this accumulation of merit and how is it connected to going to heaven so they postulated something called adrishta a potency some kind of a uh fact invisible factor which carries this result so you can see this question is what bill is asking must have occurred to them also why would they other, otherwise come up this with this theory of adrishta in fact the word adrishta has entered into uh indian languages 
so when people say they come have bad luck or something oh it's my adrishta <laughs> they don't know it's a technical term from 3000 years ago um that term fell out of use when the theistic philosophies of uh, religions philosophies in india became popular immediately you will notice whether it's a vaishnava tradition a shaiva tradition a shakta tradition in whatever um theistic tradition we have in hinduism everywhere among all the adjectives given to god all the qualities of god one adjective is karmadhyaksha the dispenser of the results of karma or in other words answer to bill's question is what connects karma to its results one answer for the believers for those who are believe in bhakti god is the connector god is the but it shows that they they thought out these questions and they were uh, skeptics materialists charvakas who did not believe in god who did not believe in this adrishta or whatever so one of the verses of the skeptics the charvakas goes like this they are they are poking fun at the law of karma of of the mimamsakas they are saying if the if the oblations offered uh here into the fire are taken by the fire fire is supposed to be one of the names of fire is hutavaha one who takes your oblations to the gods and so the gods will reward you by taking your departed ancestor your father to heaven that is the whole psychology you offer these sacrifices to the gods in the fire and the fire takes it to it's, it's like fedex you know it takes it to the gods a divine fedex and the gods are happy with it and they will make space for your dad and in heaven so if the offering here can take it the fire can take it to heaven then throw your father into the fire they will t- take your father to heaven straight away that's the skeptic the charvaka <laughs> so yes yeah, so so the skepticism was there but if you ask me which way do you come down on i'll come down on the side of karma ultimately vedanta will deny law of karma also if there's one non dual reality what karma who's karma where will um, but in the level of transactional truth vyavaharika karma is there why otherwise there is no explanation for moral causation good leads to good this implicit belief we have if you ask why did this happen to me the answer from religion would be maybe god is testing you or the hindu or the buddhist would say it is your karma what are these answers whether it's god or karma or whatever god is rewarding or punishment punishing the abrahamic religions might say that's also in a very general sense if you look deeper inside god does not reward and punish uh, 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 even in the abrahamic religions god does not reward and punish uh, erratically or whimsically uh, god is just because god is just so the punishment and reward is also just which is another way of stating the law of karma now what are these answers these are answers to moral causation Qu- question of why is it happening not the physical part of it why did i uh, what did this person who is so good why did this person get such illnesses what does science say oh the answer is because uh, he got infected by bacteria the, what you would say to that is oh you're telling me how it happened i'm asking why it happened because it could have happened to anybody why particularly this person 
For that, science has no answer. So this is, science would say, it's an accident. There's no further, you cannot push why beyond a certain, science will give you the physical facts. This is what happened. You, this person ate contaminated food, for example, and therefore got a sickness, and that's it. But why did it happen to this person, not anybody else? For that, there is no answer. Science will say it's an accident. Lawrence Cross, the physicist, he says, if you keep asking why, it's like a child who keeps asking why, the only possible answer is go to bed. <laughs> but, that will not satisfy any of us. That everything is random. Everything is accidental. Then there is no moral purpose, uh, nothing, uh, no meaning behind any, anything happening in the, in, in the universe then. So it leads to a very, it leads to, straight away to the whole point, back again I would say to the hard problem of consciousness. Is there any reality to us as conscious beings? So that's why what I would say. Yes, Bill again. True, we are not using the word law in the strict scientific sense. Because in the strict scientific sense, if you use a, uh, the term law, then the cause and effect must both be observed. And the link must be observed. And then only you can say it's a law. How is the causation? But in this case, it's the effects and causes are not observed. If you see the effects, you don't see the causes. They are, they'll say, in your past life. If you see, do the causes right now, do some action, you will get the results. You don't see the results now. In a future life. You don't see them together. Until you see the correspondence, you can't call it strictly a law. But that's true of any moral law. If you say law of honesty, law of unselfishness. So somebody asked, why are you calling them laws? It's not like the law of gravity. You can't break the law of gravity. If you try to break the law of gravity by jumping off a building, you'll just die. But say, if you say honesty is a law, I can break that law. See, this is the question. I can break that law. I can tell a lie. So the beautiful answer to this, I read somewhere. It says, these moral laws, you actually cannot break these laws. You can only break yourself against these laws. <laughs> the more you violate them, the more you are violating yourself. Your inner integrity as, as a person. You start falling apart internally. It has an effect. It's an undoubted effect. Um... This, you know, this question, everything that we are right now, is it just genes and um, our nervous system and our environment? Or is it something beyond that? So this is the topic of the debate which we are going to have next week, is it? A week after that, 28th November. I hear some tickets are still available at the Rubin Museum. Steve Mitchell, he is a, neuroscien a neuroscientist, a geneticist from Trinity College, Dublin. So I guess it's going to be a debate. He is going to say that, his point is, he's written a book, Innate, which says everything that we are is hardwired. There's nothing beyond this. No consciousness or um, um, certainly nothing that survives death. No question of any kind of um, soul or anything like that. It's just this body, that's all. And I'm going to be 
talking about what we are just talking about. So we are going to discuss this. 28th on the Rubin Museum. So if you are interested, mark it in your diary and you have to register for it. Evening, 7.30, I think, yeah. Oh no, did they do? <laughs> I hope they do. <laughs> now, if you, if you go to our website, um, our website, Vedanta Society, you will see a link to the Rubin Museum page on the right-hand side. If you just go there on the top right of the, of the page, it's the home page itself. There's a link. Click on that. It will take you to the place where you have to register. I think a few tickets. I spoke with the, I wrote to the director. Uh, he said a few tickets are still left. Let's hear the questions. Uh, wait, uh, this gentleman first, and then yes, yes. So uh, I know you, you say that the real world is not real, and it is perceived by the brain through the neurons and chemistry. But you can say the same thing about the enlighten enlightenment people who have felt the enlightenment or consciousness that that is also perceived by the same mechanisms mm. through the brain. So how can one be real and the other not? Right. For that, you have to understand what we are talking about here. The consciousness in which everything is perceived, including brain and nervous system also. Right now, it's not a question of the enlightened person perceiving consciousness. What is that enlightened person? person realizes that I am consciousness. He does not see consciousness as an object. You see, the word which we used, aprameya, not an object of awareness, not an object of knowledge. So the Atman, the pure consciousness, is not an object of knowledge. Just as we see this world, just as we experience our own thoughts, they are all objects of knowledge. Why? Because that's how you see them. When you look at this book, you are the person seeing and the book is an object to you. Are you with me? When you think a thought, Swami has a book in his hand, that's a thought. That thought is an object to you and you are the experiencer of that thought. But the consciousness which you are, which is lighting up all these objects, that is not an object. That is what we are discussing here. Self-evident, it cannot be denied. It is. Without it, nothing else is. If you deny that, somebody asked, um, suppose you deny that there is such a thing. There's a question in ancient philosophy, ancient Indian philosophy. They call it Jagad Andhya Prasanga. The darkness, the world plunged in darkness. If you deny that awareness, it's like this. If you see my hand, are you there? Are you seeing my hand? You say yes. If you close your eyes, are you seeing my hand? You say no. But are you there? Yes. Are you there as an aware being? You are aware that your eyes are closed. Similarly, imagine that you have closed the portals of all your senses. Are you still there? Though you are not seeing anything, hearing anything, smelling, tasting, touching anything. Are you still there? You would say yes. Follow it further. If you suppress your thoughts, are you still there? Instead of, and if you think about it intellectually, you might say, no, it's doubtful that I'll be there if I have there no thoughts. If you follow it intuitively, you will see that you are very much there. Just that you are not thinking. When your mind is blank, are you there or not? When you are not perceiving, when you are not thinking, feeling, emoting, anything. You are still there. What is that? And the other question, that which is there, in spite of shutting down the senses and the mind, if you remove that, 
and keep the senses, mind and everything, what will be your experience? Do you follow? What will happen? Nothing. Your entire, everything will disappear. You don't exist anymore. That one is you. And the rest are apps. <laughs> you can download them. Yes. In fact, the next verse. Oh, we have run out of time. All right. Let's just hear the questions. Next verse is very interesting. It talks about uh, what will happen when the apps start failing. <laughs> I. So as we grow older, memory is not working as well. People become upset. Don't be upset. You, the consciousness, you are aware of a keen memory. You, the consciousness, you are aware of a faltering memory. Nothing, nothing wrong to you, with you. You are exactly the same. As the body ages, the brain also ages. And so certain capacities, everything slows down. And it's very natural. And it should not upset you at all. It's inconvenient. It's inconvenient. But that's all. It's nothing wrong with you. You are that same unchanged awareness, undimmed awareness. There were two other hands raised there. Bill, yes. I just wanted to comment on Bill's question and your answer. It seems to me there's no conceivable empirical research that could establish the law of karma. Only through revelation of some enlightened being can say that such a thing exists. Yes, the way they have tried to establish the law of karma is through argumentation. It's not a proof. It's not an empirical proof. It's not a mathematical proof. It's more a proof like lawyers would argue their case in court. So what do lawyers do? They supply a battery of reasons. Evidence, reasons, uh, arguments for their case. So that's how these philosophers who support the law of karma argue. In absence of the law of karma... What other option is there? See, there's this interesting book, The Problem of Evil in Indian Philosophy. Arthur Herman, he is a professor of philosophy in uh, uh, Hawaii University. So he wrote this book. You know, the question is, why is there evil in the world if God exists? So this is a question that every theistic religion has to answer. Non-theistic religions don't have to answer this. Why? See, Buddhists. Why is there evil in the world? That's the nature of the world. It's continuously changing and that gives rise to suffering. That's it. That's the way the world is. It changes and change gives rise to suffering. But if your religion says God exists and this God is an all-powerful God, all-knowing God and good God, loving God, all-powerful and not loving, then you can see evil exists because it's a dictator. And it may seem funny now, but the ancients thought in that way. In the pre-Judaic religion. There is a very interesting story. The story of Noah and the great flood. So what, what happened? If you, if you look at the, the story in Judaism, the story is that um, God was angry with humanity because they violated the moral commandments. And so God wanted to punish them, drown them all. So God flooded the world, and but he wanted everything to continue. So he asked Noah, who was righteous, to uh, an ark and take the animals two by two and so on. You know, it's very interesting. The same story was there in the Babylonian civilization. 
same story but with one crucial difference in the babylonian story mesopotamian in the mesopotamian story there is a counterpart to noah there is an ark there is a flood there is the anger of god but the difference is this in the in the later story that is the uh, jewish story god did it why because it was just the human beings were awful and god punished them it was a just punishment because god is good we were bad we are punished see justice god did it because god is good now in the Be- the mesopotamian story why did god do it because the human beings get this they were so noisy god got disturbed and he wanted to shut them down literally this is the story so god did it because he could god was annoyed because you were disturbing god not because of any idea of good and bad so you are in the mesopotamian story god is just power like a dictator the same story evolution of god god doesn't evolve our conception of god evolves as we became more civilized we said god cannot just be a despot god must be a good person good god so god is just and in further evolution god is not only just god is also loving now if you have a loving and just god and all powerful god why is there evil why is there suffering in this world if god was not all powerful the world is like this because god has no no other option this is the best he could do they are very poor designer them you can take him to consumer court or if god is perfect but but not loving then you can say yes god has designed a ugly world because god wants us to suffer but loving god which of you as parents would not want your children to be perfectly happy as human beings you can't do it but suppose you had all the power to make them happy make their life perfect which human parent wouldn't do it so god is our divine parent why doesn't god made make life perfect if god is existing and omnipotent and all good and loving so this is called the problem of evil every religion has to answer the theistic religions in hinduism also have to answer in um, judaism christianity islam everywhere the answer has to be there this is called the problem of evil yeah, no no don't don't uh, are you going to say something about this no oh, oh oh hold on don't be quick to answer or don't be quick to ask another question stay with this question this is important so this is called the problem of evil and what is the answer different religions have come up with different answers in christian theology this is called theodicy what does theodicy mean justifying the ways of god to man justifying the ways of god to man why god did this so there are many theories god is testing us no 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 i don't like that theory all right god is making us strong suffering makes us strong there are many theories like this so see what answer fits you so what this professor herman has done he has collected all the answers from the different religions of the world different philosophies of the world even from literature across human civilization what is the answer to the problem of evil and he has collected a list of 23 answers you think there is no answer to this question he gives you 23 answers but don't be so eager to look at the answers none of them will satisfy you i can guarantee it you will mm. last answer he gives is law of karma he says the indians came up with this idea of the law of karma and then he examines it and he finds the whole chapter on the flaws of the law of karma and he says even with this but this is by far the most uh, it is the most superior answer you can get the most uh, global it can explain many things which other things other answers cannot explain
So he says, so this is the best that civilizations have done over the last few thousand years. And the law of karma, interestingly, Hindus have many, many views within Hinduism, but they all agree on the law of karma. Buddhists don't even believe in God. This Atman that we are talking about, Buddhists have an entirely different idea about it. But they have exactly the same idea of the law of karma. The Jains have the same idea of the law of karma. The Sikhs, so all the Indian civilizations, they have religions, they believe in this. One um, senior Swami, he put it this way. Ye badi gambhir tattwa hai. This is a very profound principle. Because schools of thought across thousands of years with multiple philosophies, multiple theories, who disagree on almost every other point, agree on this point. So this is the... So we're asking what is the justification for law of karma? It's like a battery of arguments. If you read Herman's book, you will find a lot of arguments in favor of the law of karma. Why it should be something like this? Because the alternatives are completely unpalatable. Yeah. Yes. So I want to add something to what Bill's observation is. Uh, I think he, he says there's no empirical research. I think the entire universe, the creation, uh, it's, it's so self-evident. Nothing explains the differences, the differentiation. One is born in the US, the other one that is, that is true, that is true. Well, what explains this inexplicable difference? That's what I was just saying earlier. Science can go, science, economics, all of this can explain something. Um, but it will only tell you the how. It will not ultimately answer the why. Why ultimately this particular baby had to suffer uh, in, in a, say, was born in a famine-infested um, area and starved to death? Why? You can give all sorts of economic reasons, political reasons, scientific reasons. It will not close the explanatory gap. You'll still have a moral why. Why this one and not somebody else? There, science will tell you that's not a question. We cannot abandon that question. That's the most vital question closest to our hearts. But I think that this lady there? Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, could you, you, somebody had explained that it's not an object. The Atman, yes. It's not an object. It is not something that can be tested with a scientific inquiry. Yes. It's not, not, not almost like, it is the who am I question. That's the <laughs> so you basically see layers and layers and say, this is not yes. me, this is not me, this is not me. But then I think what you're left, that is the only route, or that's the only method, maybe can't even call it a method. It is a method, it's a methodology. And what Vedanta says is, it's not something vague. In fact, it's the most, when you understand properly what Vedanta is trying to say, it's the most obvious of things. You say, it can't be understood through science. But what Vedanta will say, all your science is done by that consciousness. Without that consciousness, you do not see, you do not hear, smell, taste, touch. As, as Emerson said, I am the doubter and the doubt. Where is the doubt? But in your awareness. Where are you the doubter? But in awareness itself. S switch off that, that thing in the back, you know. Beyond the senses, beyond the mind, that, that awareness. Switch it off, nothing remains. No science, religion, nothing remains. Yes. If we can't 
case for? Yes. It cannot be directly perceived, but the method is that you catch it. You know, the, the language they use is, it is perceived by itself. It is self-revealed. You know it intuitively. I as I am that, and it's not. A, in fact, everything else depends on it. You might think that's vague or that's not. How do I know that's true? In fact. Truth and falsity all are proved because of its presence. It's the most, once you get what they're talking about, it's the most indubitable thing in the universe. Because your entire life depends upon it. So it's not proved by the um, methods, the ordinary methods of knowledge, by, by ordinary epistemology. But what Vedanta will say, epistemology depends on it. All the methods of knowledge depend on it. It's like trying to say, that the proof that these people are here is that I see them. What's the proof that you are here? I saw you. So the question, the principle is, if you see it, that's the proof for its existence. Now if I ask, what is the proof that I've got eyes? Because I can't see my eyes. Not directly. The way I'm seeing you. If the proof for existence is seeing and I cannot see my eyes, the conclusion would be that then my eyes don't exist. And yet, what would the real answer be? The very fact that you are seeing anything at all is a proof. Every seeing is a proof of two things. The object that you are seeing and the eyes themselves. Though the eyes themselves are not objects which you see out there. Similarly, consciousness is proved by everything in your life. Once you begin to understand what Vedanta says, everything in your life points to you the awareness. And it's that consciousness operating the mind and sense organs which stands as witness to the presence or absence of other things. In fact, as she said at the very beginning, it's a good way to end. The, the existence of objects is what can be doubted. The existence of the subject cannot be doubted. It is what lights up the doubt and you know, your faith, doubt, all of these come and go in consciousness. So this approach is not an approach of faith. What is an approach of faith? The God-based approach is an approach of faith. That there is such a thing. The moment you say, I am that thing, you don't, have to, you don't need faith to say that. It's like saying that, um, um, suppose... I ask you that when you come in you sign your name and I want to know if you came I have to look at the register that whether you were in the class I have to look at the register and it testifies to your presence now if I want to know whether I was in the class do I have to look for my name in the register was I there in the class maybe it's in the long past but right now no because my own presence is revealed to me directly what is that thing alright we'll end here and the next class is, yeah, the next class is there, next Friday. There's the next verse, I wanted to do it today, but we'll do it next time also. But it's, uh, it's uh, one of those verses which are chanted when somebody dies. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om 
तत्सत्म कृष्णापणमस्तु